Välkomna till Skapa mål. Podden där vi talar om påhittade mål och de bakliggande människorna. to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. And with me down under in Australia, we have Lauren Gone. Uh, <laughs> hey, George. Of, yes, uh, of, uh, of La Trobe University mm-hmm. and of Superlinguo. Yes, La Trobe is my day job and Superlinguo was my little blog home on the internet. Yes, yes. And uh, you also have a podcast too, right? I do, yes. I have a podcast called Lingthusiasm. Uh, it's a show with Gretchen McCulloch uh, where we're very enthusiastic about linguistics. Yes, um, and that would certainly be interesting to our listeners. Um, I wa- do want to say um, there was like a little thing on Twitter. I was tagged as potentially doing like an exchange with you guys on Superlinguo, and I was like, well, I guess I, I could go on there and talk about conlanging, but like I hadn't listened for a long time, so I don't know <laughs> if you mentioned it on there. But uh, I'm like, what would they have to talk about? Because it's like a general linguistics podcast. And then I saw your talk at the LCC, and I'm like, oh, she made a conlang. <laughs> she did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> And it's an interesting one. Uh, thank it's you. It's a good one. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that, actually. So um, you did a talk about Aram Teskin. Um, before we get too far, like, can you talk a little bit about how you got into conlanging? And is this your first language, or have you done other languages before, or all of that? This is definitely the first language that I have gone deep on and kind of fleshed out all bits of, and it hasn't just been a, an idle speculation. I got into conlanging specifically because uh, PM Freestone is a very good friend of mine, and very early on in the writing process for her Shadow Scent books, which is the world in which um, the Aram Tescan language is spoken. Uh, we were talking about how her world building process was going. And I I happened to, you know, that thing that linguists do when they read sci-fi and fantasy. And I was like, here are all my opinions about what makes a good or a rich or an interesting constructed language in a constructed world. And <laughs> essentially just talked her into letting me uh, run with things. And so as she was building uh, this world and the world of Aram Tesh is very much centered around uh, scent as a key sensory experience in the world. And so I kind of took that as a motivation to pack in uh, that as a as a way to kind of make the language novel. And that's definitely where I get into the art langing bit of doing con langing. But also it was a chance to really see if I could stick out an idea. I think everyone's kind of good at having half-baked or whimsical uh, conlanging ideas, but I wanted to see if I could stick through the like getting through the kind of broad phonetics and 
coming up with a, a pronoun paradigm and, and all those bits as well. Yeah. Well, it's never complete, really, but... No, absolutely you, not. You can, I... you can go or more or less. Uh, so this, and this is like a full language, although uh, I believe you said it doesn't appear so much in the novel, right? That's correct. Um, it's definitely one of those things where I, uh, and I'm sure this is something all conlangers can relate to, I got way more into constructing the language than was anything that really appeared in the books. But part of building the language, even if details of the language itself didn't make it into the novels, the process of building the language was part of an ongoing conversation that shaped the world as well. Okay. Now, this is the what you talked about with your talk. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, there, are, there are some other things about Aram Teskin we, we might want to cover uh, later on. But you put in a lot of different things that are focused on scent in order to reflect this sort of culture's mm -hmm. central focus on scent. And the thing that struck me with, with your talk, which uh, that should be on YouTube, go ahead and watch it, people, so that you can, you know, follow along. We don't, I don't know if we'll necessarily like rehash everything here, but we will um, be talking about it. But the, so you have starting out with some smell vocabulary mm -hmm. and scent focused nominals which mm -hmm. is, you know, you have a number of things that are named after they're sent. Yes, rather than doing what we do in English and just calling things banana smelling or coffee smelling. Yeah, uh, and you have scent, a scent evidential, which, yes. yeah, I think you talked about that doesn't appear to be attested in any actual language, but it... No, evid evidentiality, uh, which is when you use grammar to mark your source of information is something I have worked on a lot for my day job. And so mm -hmm. I often, often what's reflected in the grammar of the constructed languages I, I work on reflects my, my day job interests as well. And yeah. yeah, really pushing just like, oh, it's so nice to kind of leave the big typology of what we know about human language, leave it on my desk and then just go uh, wild and, and do something that's not in there was really fun. Yeah, yeah. And then and you have scent-based metaphor and like faced is literally nosed. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, nose forward is uh, facing something. Um, I really oh, okay. love, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it's such a fun way to get into the con culture that you're working with is thinking about those metaphors that really shape the basis of our daily experience. Yeah. The, the thing that struck me about that was from your talk, you said you seem to be in the mode of when it comes to the scent based features of the language, mm -hmm. you were intentionally, intentionally not worrying too much about uh, naturalism. No, I kept everything else super natlang. <laughs> And was like, really, like I have this beautifully uh, like three-step evolution pronoun system. And I really thought really hard about my phonemic inventory. And then it came to smells and I just threw the Nat Langness out the window. Wait, but the thing is like nothing, 
nothing that you did that you talked about strikes me as impossible. The the thing that's the furthest out there is like scent-based evidential. Mm-hmm. But like all the lexical stuff, yeah, that could happen. And then the 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 scent-based metaphor as well in a culture that scent is important like seems like that would that could make sense. But at the same time, like all of them put together does seem like it it might be a little bit like edging towards unlikely, right? Yeah. But that's the fun of of it and I think it's it's it is an interesting thing for conlangers to think about because always in conlanging communities people are asking like is this natural is this mm-hmm. something that that could happen and often it's really tame things that like people can come up with an antidote immediately but like sometimes you know you don't need to worry about that because like you're in a fiction fictional world where you are taking other liberties with reality that lead the language in this direction, right? I mean, there's literal magic in these books. So slightly fudging what we know about human typology doesn't feel uh, very, very dramatic (laughs) as a possibility. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it's partly that I work with natural languages as part of my day job. I uh, have written a grammar of one Tibetan language and plan to write another for another group language that I work with. And so I certainly very much have that understanding that grammar writing is never a job that's finished. And, um, but also a kind of, perhaps sometimes I think maybe I'm like that person whose sense of humor is so dry. People don't realize they're telling a joke. Like the, the unnaturalness is so subtle that (laughs) perhaps it doesn't look as, um, quite as whimsical as something that's the complete art length that, uh, it's it's a joke that amuses me to kind of take these little twists on natural language. Yeah, well, but um, but it is um, it is definitely an interesting thing. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you on the on the scent focused nominals, mm-hmm. like so you have the rose scent, lirpa, and then lirpaya is rose. It's derived from the scent of the rose. Correct. I I have a question. Yeah. And I don't know if you have the answer, but did some of those scent terms actually like ping pong back and forth, like originally was referring to the rose, then referred to the scent, and then they re-derived the word for the scent for, for the rose from it? This is one of those conlang features that is so great when you're working in the abstract, in your grammar, and then you start translating texts and you're like, why did I do this? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think at various points I've been like, oh, this is this is a historical feature and and new words tend to not be coined this way because it just became a bit of a um a a, a bit of a logistical headache to uh work this way because it's definitely one of the least natural features is to start with these relatively abstract sensory uh, nouns and then move into what we think of as more concrete things. So um, there's a historical way you can do that and that's actually part of the uh, steam and smoke uh, in the translated text that's part of the the narrative of book one. 
<laughs> and then the the current words that that's kind of an older construction for steam and smoke and then the newer construction I think I just went with the words of steam and smoke and and not this kind of scent based thing because uh the abstraction was making it a bit difficult to use in in running text oh that's interesting yeah I was just I was just curious about that uh like I thought of that and I thought of like I I looked up recently that the color term pink mm-hmm. derives from the name of a flower. Yes. Oh. Which I did not know. And like there it, it it would be entirely possible for people to forget that that flower exists and then name another flower a pink flower. Mhm. And I I I wondered if like something similar could 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 happen in Erm Teskin with with some of these sound based uh, smell based nominals. Yeah, I think there'd definitely be cycles of of that happening for sure. Yeah, let's talk about some of the other features that you didn't mention. Then. Sure. Um, like uh, you you just talked about the evolution of pronouns in the language. So like what like. There's an evolution of gender in the pronoun system. So yes, what exactly reflects has... the there's a kind of overarching narrative that I don't think I'm spoiling it too much if you want to read the Shadow Scent books, but the earlier um kind of substrate religious form in the Empire was a religion that worshipped a ungendered primordial being. Um, And then as the younger gods and the newer religion kind of came in and, and, and kind of took its place parallel to the ruling class, um, it brought in more solidified concepts of binary gender, which is a, and so this trope between the kind of older religions and the newer religion plays out in, in the narrative. Um, And so I, um, I had originally just planned to not put gender into the pronoun system and keep it really basic and then once it became evident this was a major theme driving the world I was like oh so I was kind of kind of went through some linguistic evolution uh, across a couple of stages of the language it has a very loose like 500 year time depth on some historical changes because I kind of wanted to since I was committing to doing this I, I was committed to kind of doing it whole whole and wholeheartedly and so uh decided to put a little bit of historical sound change and lexical change in there and so took that same time depth for the the pronoun evolution system so it went through um and it's relatively transparent there's like an earlier less transparent phase to give it a bit of personality and then a very transparent addition of uh prefixing gender oh Interesting. So, so they they added. They became they became interested in gender, as okay. the uh, religious system changed. That's interesting. Uh, so, so that is ends up being tied into the narrative as well. The 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 gendered pronouns. You you're saying saying that you have a roughly a five hundred year time depth. This is a question that comes up to me with me in my own work as I'm trying to evolve languages, but like what does 500 year time depth mean to you in terms of what changes in the language? Well, I'm trying to sell this to an author. And so uh, 
<laughs> as I was explaining to PM Freestone as I was doing this, it's a bit like if you heard Shakespeare. And so yeah. you've got some you've got some light grammatical changes, you've got some light sound changes, but you're probably going to still understand what's happening there. So that was the kind of mental benchmark I took for how much I could change things between the older system and the new system. That sounds like a good thought. I cuz like when I'm doing that I'm like trying to think of like, well, I guess I can break this up into stages, but like how many sound changes? And then there is no answer on that. Yeah. Like languages don't change at a constant rate. So I can't, I just have to like, okay, when I feel like I'm done with sound changes, I'll be done with sound changes. Yeah. And I <laughs> and, think, you know, you also have to think about what's happening in the world because you have probably fewer grammatical changes in a language like Tibetan, certainly as many phonetic changes, uh, reading old Tibetan, just there's so many silent letter equivalents. But grammatically, it's been relatively conservative. English in the last 500 years has been pretty playful. English in the last thousand years has had that massive change, but because of the very obvious political experience of having Norman French just shoved on top of it. And so I think you know, 500 years might be more than enough time depth to keep you very, very busy if it's been 500 years of international or intergalactic commerce and trade and, and colonizing pressure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It all, it does have to tie into the world building. Absolutely. It always just comes back to story for me. Yeah. So uh, what, what else can we discuss so you 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 have other features that um are base five counting that i think that's a test is that attested and i am i imagine base five counting is attested just because we have five fingers on a hand so it seems pretty uh natural yeah i don't i don't know off the top of my head any languages that are strictly base five but i know of languages that are hybrid systems with some base five. Um, and then regional dialect differences. Can, mm -hmm. can you tell me like what kinds of like regional dialects of this language are there? Sure. I, um, it was so amazing to work with an author who really cares about world building because very early on in the process, uh, PM Freestone built a map and then it was really beautifully illustrated for the, I think it's inside the American edition of Darkest Bloom and the UK edition of Crown of Smoke, where it kind of lays out the geography of the world. And so uh, Hagmia, which is in the hills, I made that the very conservative dialect because um, far flung from the urban center and, and hills are really great as a feature for conserving features. So they have a, a bit more of that old sound system. I kind of didn't bring through a few changes. Most of the dialect differences are kind of high level impressionistic and we worked them out so that PM Freestone could paint a realistic picture of when um, Raquel and Ash went to visit Hagmia or the Erdoshan province has a slightly different intonation pattern, which is largely uh, something that's evident in their culture of oral poetry. So the dialect features are kind of at the impressionistic level uh, to help with world building. My favorite, though, is the Afarayan dialect because that F sound is literally only a phoneme that exists in that dialect. And so 
um, I would sneak in place names and character names with that phoneme just to uh, subtly remind you that they're there. Oh, what sound was that? The um, labiodental fricative. Uh, sorry. Oh. Aforai as the uh, capital of that province. Oh, so that that that's only in that particular dialect. Only in that particular dialect, and um, I have big, deep, dark, cult secret reasons why uh, it appears there and only there. But very much that that's me bordering on almost uh, fan fiction conlanging. Doesn't appear in the books anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting to, because that like I'm thinking of how how it happened that uh, "fa" is only in one dialect, which when it's a fairly common sound. But yeah. So when working on a conlang, especially when I'm working with an author on a project, there's always the in-world reason and the out-of-world reasons. And the out-of-world reason is that the name um, "afore" was already locked in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I, I was already committed to uh, a consonant inventory, and so I was like, well, this sticks out. The same with um, Ido. There's a couple of characters whose names begin with I, and they're only from a particular region as well. I was like, well, this is just a regional feature. Uh, but with a four I, there's a um, there was another language that was spoken there in deep history, and so that's why you find names that still carry this historical little fossil. Yeah, this is this is why I. Uh... In my own story that I'm writing, mm -hmm. I have had placeholder names, but I'm going to just replace them after I have the naming languages done. <laughs> sure. I th yeah, I think that's something I always check with author. You know, I've worked on a, a couple of other things with some people. So um, I did a, a project as a charity project with LJ Charleston uh, for the Torian language, which may or may not uh, ever be in a book that gets finished. Uh, but with that, it was a combination of what names can we replace and authors can get attached to names. So uh, I always encourage people, I'll encourage you now, George, uh, to change your characters' names before you get to attach to them because <laughs> it gets harder the longer it goes on. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's always, I, I find for me, world building in parallel to language building is really important and I'm not a writer or a storyteller by nature. And so for me, it's always a collaborative project and that adds a fun dimension. Yeah. Well, it is, it is, it is absolutely, uh, I mean, this, that's what this podcast is about. So that's, uh, that's, uh, something that, uh, I definitely enjoy doing and, you know, you always end up making more stuff than you're going to use, right? Sometimes I find that you spend a lot of time working on something and then it has a fleeting relevance. And so PM Freestone and I sat down for a couple of hours one day and figured out the commerce system so that the currency was viable as a base five, but it also made sense that when they bought a horse for some gold zigs at one point, it seemed comparable to how much you would pay with some bronze zigs for a loaf of bread, <laughs> because again, this is the kind of thing when I read fiction, I'm always just like, how does that even, how could it be one gold piece to buy a horse, but like four copper pieces to buy some bread? Like 
how many copper pieces do you need for a gold? Like what, what is the economic system here? And so for me, it's actually quite joyful to spend a couple of days really fleshing something out, even if it only impressionistically or in passing uh, affects what happens in the narrative. <laughs> Cause I'm paying yeah. attention. <laughs> That's that. I mean, there, there's, there's a thing of like, what are, what, what, what things you're focused on in the world building too? Like, cause like some authors would just like not really mention prices or anything. Mm-hmm. And Others will do like that and and like work out a whole system, and sometimes the whole system the system doesn't do much, or and then other times the system the system ends up like coming up again and again. I think I I'm thinking of like um, the King Killer Chronicles. He's like paying money for things and tracking his money all the time. So like you have you end up sort of learning how much a talent is and stuff like that. But then, you know, it all depends on like what ends up being relevant in the story, right? It's like Absolutely. Is yeah. is is this a character that has limited funds and has to track every penny or is this a character that, you know, has has money and isn't really too concerned about it? Oh, yeah, and there are bits of the, you know, I kind of have decided now that the duology is finished for the books and we're not revisiting this world anymore, you know, I could keep working on the grammar. I absolutely know a grammar is never finished, but I'm kind of just publishing what is kind of in there so that I can move on. (laughs) And um, there are certainly, as I was going through it, I was like, oh, that is really under, underdeveloped there. And I just kind of had to go it wasn't in the story it didn't come up we didn't work on it it's time to move on you can revisit it in the future yeah let me uh, actually pull up the grammar again so that i can have it um another project i'm working on with someone has an incredibly elaborate system of pronouns and i think it's going to have an incredibly elaborate series of politeness registers in the verbs and um this means the verbs are going to get way more attention than they did with Aram Tescan so that that can be integrated properly. So, yeah, again, it depends on what you're focusing on. Yeah, yeah. The world that I w- I'm am building for this story, like one thing that is popping up and one reason why I'm not necessarily doing one full language, but uh, at least at the start trying to make a bunch of naming languages, is this story started out as sort of a fantastical version of the story of my PhD uh, defense. Cool. Is this, is this some kind of affordable therapy for you? (laughs) (laughs) It moved very far beyond that, but like Mm -hmm. the basic premise is still there uh, of this is a, like a graduate level school setting, the equivalent in this, weird fantasy world mm-hmm. and you have several characters as their sort of final project of becoming masters have to create a new spell right cool. and so yeah so it's like a dissertation in that like you are you are you are 
building some, some kind of new knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, but getting into like where I am at trying to put languages into this thing, if you are building something that's similar to the academic environment we have now, you are citing people's names all the time and you are citing names from many different cultures, right? So like I have a couple of families that I'm building out so I can generate like names from a bunch of different places and probably will have a few high splits just to have a few extras. Excellent. And uh, yeah, and probably there will be like names of other students and professors in there that, that will be from other cultures coming to this yeah. one university. Nice. So, yeah, so that, like you said, it depends on what you are focused on. You had a couple of things in, in this world you were working with, with the, their culture is focused on smell right mm -hmm. now, right? And the, you had the, the, the change in gender construction that mm -hmm. went along and, and built something into the language for that. So it, it really is interesting. And this is something that I've been thinking about in terms of when you are working in terms of a story, like how much are you going to do? And to me, it seems like part of it is that practical thing of how, how much do you need? And part of it is like, how much of it do you need to create in order for this to feel real to you and to readers? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes for me, all I do is create the shape of the language and send that to an author with a word generator. I love using awk words so much. I'm sure you've mentioned it heaps of times and we'll put a link to it again maybe. Um, but just being able to send someone a template where they can click and just get a whole bunch of words. And then it's always fascinating to me what they, what an author will pull out of the name generator that maybe gives the language a different flavor to where I might've gone with it. And um, sometimes that's it. I, I let them, I, I let it go and they create names for people and places and, and that's all that happens. And sometimes I get to dig a little deeper and then, yeah, really let the, the story set the priorities for what to focus on. Yeah. So, so let's talk about a little bit more about the other projects you've worked on. You mentioned one of them was a charity project, you said? Yes. So um, about a year ago, we had about, you know, over a year ago, we had really terrible bushfires in Australia and a group of authors started a series of online auctions to raise money for the bushfire relief program that was happening. And so I offered to construct the kind of naming part of a language for the winning author and that was LJ Charleston who's working on ongoingly on a YA project and uh, so kind of working with her on the kind of shape of what she wanted and in working with most of what I've done in terms of language construction has been for fiction and it's been for fiction mostly read by English speakers, although Shadow Scent is being translated now. And I'm so fascinated to see uh, how it interacts with the German case system and how it got transliterated into Russian 
Cyrillic. Um, <laughs> that's like trying to track down uh, copies from different languages is such a weird but exciting and delightful hobby. Um, <laughs> but often you kind of, so I'm very, I kind of let go when it comes to pronunciation because whatever the reader thinks it is, you know, I'm not going to stand in their way and be too authoritative. So trying to think in terms of how readers of different Englishes might approach it, trying to make it relatively memorable, uh, making sure characters' names feel different enough um, across the books. Um, and then also, you know, I'm very, if an author is desperately wanting, uh, you know, umlauts or accents, really wants to go kind of very European and Tolkien in their aesthetic, or if they really want to push something different, I'm always happy to play around with that as well. So um, maybe we'll see Torian that I did for LJ Charleston. I hope so. It, it's a really pretty looking, very um, romance European. It's not, it's not too out there. Yeah, there was, there was one test for a shadow language for Shadow Scent for the um, kind of evil magic people. <laughs> Oh, and okay. uh, it was definitely one of the the funnest, least English-looking languages I've put together. Although I have to say, one of the least English conlangs I've worked on has been a project called Geograms for augmented reality mobile phone game based around Melbourne, where we created a non, not it's not a human language expressible but it is a set of visual symbols uh, that capture locations around Melbourne. Um, that was for Troy Innocent and a group of developers here in Melbourne for an app called, a game called 64 Ways of Being. And uh, that was really fun to just like not even think in terms of uh, the phonetics or, or words and just go straight to those those visual elements. So that was a, a really different project as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so in terms of your, your aiming this toward English speakers, mm -hmm. um, so you try, do you try to be sort of more like tame in your phonemic inventories then in terms of what they what do tend to not be too uh kind of pressing too far beyond what an english speaker unless the author really wants that and then i would be totally there for it yeah and trying to not appear to borrow too directly from natural languages because i think kind of putting speakers of chinese dialects on a parallel with kind of non-human alien species if that's what you're doing and not kind of setting it within the narrative of Earth just doesn't quite sit right with me. So I tend to not exoticize known human languages. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that is that is a... Uh, that can be a bit of a question to think, think about because, um, like... I've I've seen discussions of appropriation pop up once in a while in the Conlang mm -hmm. community, and they they never really go very far. But um, I have seen a lot of the LCS job ads 
Like they are looking for something that sounds dramatic or sounds romance or sounds like some, some particular language group. And there's a sense that the authors are trying to code the language to a particular group because they are that this is like a fantasy counterpart of that culture. Yeah. And I think sometimes as a conlanger, my job is as much educating authors about how natural languages work as it is about building constructed languages when working in collaboration with someone. And I definitely feel a lot of those tensions. And I think if we had more conlangers from a greater diversity of linguistic backgrounds, those conversations might look different and you know, I kind of just err on the side of respect. And there's also so many fun and funky things you can do without falling back on accidentally making something that looks a bit too much like Nahuatl. So. Yeah. I mean, the, like one of the, the languages I'm making right now is um, uh, I, I did intentionally think of Chinese because it will be spoken by a character that is, that is uh, like slightly based on my wife. Right. But I also put things in, into it that will make it not Chinese. So like it does have mostly disyllabic compound words and, mm-hmm. and contour tones. It doesn't have exactly the same contours as Mandarin because like, and it evolved the contours in a totally different way. And then, uh, but like, it's like, I will have some features that I add in that are close to Mandarin that, like make me think of Mandarin and then I will deliberately be like, Oh, okay. I'm going to put adjectives after nouns in order to make it not Mandarin. Right. And there's only a finite set of characters in the English orthography. And so many of them evoke different languages or writing traditions for us that it's very hard to create something and not, you know, I always, I always fret about, for example, a vela nasal initial as NG because I'm like, well, as soon as I do that, I feel like I'm creating an Australian Indigenous word or a um, Nilotic language word, even though it's not the case. And so I think it's not getting too hung up on a single feature of the language, as you say, but thinking about the larger context of what you're creating. Yeah, I do. I do think it's it's helpful to like, if you're feeling hung up on something like that, to be looking for more languages where that appears because initial initial velar nasal is is rare but it occurs in a lot of different places um i remember when i was looking on estatiki i mm-hmm. wanted to do a direct inverse in li- alignment uh you are you familiar with direct inverse where you have basically you have this this hierarchy of persons oh, yeah. and like in order to make something lower on the hierarchy into the subject, you have to do some funky morphology in order to like say, oh, actually the first thing is not actually the subject. It's it's the second thing that's a subject and they're they're reversed. And in my head, because this is where I learned yeah. about it, that's always associated with Algonquian languages. And I'm like, well, but like Algonquian is a very distinct linguistic group and like taking this 
wholesale from Algonquian would be weird. But I happened to find a paper that was comparing the Algonquian system to, uh, you you might know about the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, or er, Urgyalrong. Yes. Yes. It's related to Tibetan, right? Yes. They, I know they're Sino-Tibetan. I think they're close to Tibetan. They also have a directed verse system that works differently. And I like looked at the two systems and I'm like, okay, I can take this information and I can build a completely different one <laughs> that evolved differently yeah. that like won't look like either one of them exactly. And I think this is just, yeah, the more typology you read and the more you read about the diversity of the world's languages, the less time you spend being hung up on that. And I think that's also where my tendency to be deliberately playful or irreverent with uh, existing human typology comes from as well. Just really stepping away from staking a claim that the language I'm working on is a human language as we know it. Do you have some examples in your other projects where you've done that playful, like outside of common typological types that that you've done. I know a lot of them, apparently it seems like most of them are like just naming languages. So I guess we'd probably be talking mostly phonetics, maybe morphology, right? Yeah. And I am very unboundary pushing with those because I'm leaving them in the hands of other people often. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that one of the projects I'm working on, as I said, it's in a very social, political intrigue world. And so I think that's going to really, I'm going to be reading a lot of politeness theory and really taking that up to 11 in that project, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to as an Australian and Australians kind of have this really, really bad inability to read American or British politeness very well. Um, and you know, all these amazing politeness strategies that languages like Japanese have. Um, Nepali has, which is a language I speak, has like a, a three or four way, depending how you split it, politeness distinction where my teacher didn't even teach me the most informal version because she's like, you're a foreigner. There's no way you're ever going to need the most informal. <laughs> and that just <laughs> delights me so much. So um, that's that's where I'm going to really get in way past my elbows for that project. Yeah, I, I I didn't know about Nepali, but I guess the there are a number of languages in the same area. Everybody will think about Japanese and maybe Korean when they think about politeness levels. And again, you're doing the thing that I was just talking about is like you yeah. like the, those are like the examples everybody thinks of, but you already know of an example that's outside of that, that is going to look different. Yeah, it has a three-way pronominal system, and that's reflected in a three-way verb paradigm variation as well for politeness. And uh, I always mess it up so badly. I remember watching uh, Chinese mm -hmm. historical dramas with my wife, and like this, this, this whole system is all dead now. But like. Like there was a politeness thing that the not inflectional because because Chinese doesn't have has hardly any like inflectional affixes, but there 
were pronouns, all kinds of different pronouns, including a first-person pronoun that could only be used by the emperor. So good. <laughs> and that's where these are court dramas. So like you, you hear, mm. you hear like it's like what the emperor uses the first-person pronoun Jun. Nobody else can use that pronoun. It's only for the emperor. And then, so good. and then other officials have their own hierarchy of pronouns. Yeah, and uh, and I like looked that up later, and there's like tons of these that don't appear in these dramas because they, you know, they select a few for flavor, right? Yeah, it's so good. We think of pronouns as a closed system, and here they are with different pronouns for all different kinds of people. <laughs> yeah, Japanese has has kind of that too, right? That has open class of pronouns, but uh, there's, it is, it is interesting to see that kind of thing happen in, in multiple different ways. The thing that also interests me as someone who's deeply interested in language and its place in culture is just that you can have the grammatical system, but then what does it mean to use it in context? Like if I use a pronoun that's too formal with you, am I being distant and and pushing you away or am I being it does it come across as kind of condescending and ironic that I'm being very polite to you and so the kind of social factors around how grammatical structures get used is is also something that really interests me and that you can play around with when you're world building at the same time as language building oh yeah that's that's definitely an interesting and it, it can add into character interactions and stories and all kinds of things. I remembered this because, you know, I already knew Spanish, which has um, a TV distinction. Mm-hmm. And Chinese has a TV distinction. But, like, I was in the Spanish mode of TV distinction. With, if you use usted, that implies social distance. Um, yeah. An older way of saying social distance, not not the way that people are currently, the the thing that people currently think, but not like the physical distance, people actually mean. Yeah, you are you are emotionally not as connected to this person, right? And it's not necessarily about hierarchy thing, and for the most part, Chinese does that. But I was very surprised when a teacher corrected an assignment where I was supposed to be writing a a letter to my mother and she corrected ni the informal you to nin the formal one and i'm like that that doesn't make sense to me like it's not a stranger I, to me but like it makes sense if you are emphasizing it as a sign of respect and are thinking of a culture where respect for your elders is very important. I don't think that, I don't actually think that in practice, that's like a very common thing in Chinese culture in terms of like that particular pronoun usage. But apparently for this teacher, it was, (laughs) it was, it was something important. So then there's what you're taught and what you use, which is always a a different set of factors to play around with. (laughs) But yeah, but if you have cultures that have, different uses of the same sort of politeness distinction, that would be like almost a source of minor character conflict, right? 
yeah, and this is where it's fun to get to kind of have uh, conversations. I definitely won't say that I have any right to influence the narrative, but I'm always happy to, when I work with authors, we kind of can troubleshoot things or or add elements that can possibly influence the story. And I think when you have the ability to be incredibly catty or backstabbing while also appearing to be very proper by using kind of uh, finicky court uh, politenesses, that's a really fun <laughs> source of tension. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How to represent that in the text is, is I guess, a problem for the authors mostly. Yeah, that's not yeah. my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you a setup and you can take it or leave it. And uh, that's usually how we go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, th th this is why I like to, I, 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 I want to do my own thing because I'm like, you know, Fair enough. I, I, I want to write my own thing and have the languages for it. Do you ever, here's a question. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever have them wanting to, flesh out the language to the point where they could, you could give them one or two common second language speaker errors to like put on to certain characters. Yes. We've done that. I'm trying to think very hard. We definitely have accent stuff. But yes. We had a, a translation failure in the first book uh, where okay. they were translating from the old dialect into you know, the old conserved written form into the contemporary form that led to the uh, quest, the, you know, collecting the items to save the day quest being stalled because of a translation error. So um, it's kind of a version of that. But, yeah, absolutely, I would love to. I tend to work mostly with YA authors, and so you don't tend to get quite the same level of world building complexity in there but i would love to work on a really heavily multi-language world and and set of languages and then you could really have some fun with that for sure yeah i guess there there's a there would be a balancing out act with that in terms of like how much do you want to do that and how how do you do it without without accidentally signaling that these characters are somehow stupid or something like that yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, for my sanity, I'm always pretty clear about, you know, I I definitely just did this project with PM Freestone because we are really good friends. And when I put in uh, kind of when I, I, I put together a, a lexicon and, and fleshed out these bits of the grammar, it was partly just because of the, the joy of world building with a friend and it was partly for my own amusement i definitely um it's definitely a labor of love to go off on these tangents yeah well um uh, i think uh i think uh we've been talking for a little bit and uh we might want to be wrapping up but yeah um, absolutely do you see yourself doing more of these languages for other authors or do you see yourself doing like a lot of listeners to this show do and starting to just conlang on your own for fun. I think for me, the fun is always in the collaboration. As I said, you know, I'm, I'm happily not a writer and I don't have a, but like I could imagine if someone 
like if I fell in a and d hole with some friends, I would absolutely be the person who was like, right, yeah, we have, we now have like ritualized greetings and departures. And this is how the language of our world, like I would absolutely fall down a hole with the right prompt. But um, for me, it's always the joy of building something with other people. So it's always, it's always for fun, but uh, it's the, the fun of collaboration for me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, any final thoughts for, for our listeners before we sign off then? I'm going to stick with that theme of just if it's something that brings you joy and lets you build worlds that only exist in your head and gives you a reason to read more about the languages of this world, then, then it's a great project no matter what it ends up being. Yes. Uh, and uh, well, that, uh, I'm going to say thank you. Uh, Thanks so much, George. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, to our listeners, thank you very much for listening. And happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Conlangery. Conlangery is entirely supported by our patrons at Patreon. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash conlangery and pledge your monthly amount. As little as a dollar will help us out. A special thanks to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Margaret Ransdell-Green, and all of those who have chosen to support us. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike license. You may use Conlangery episodes for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to us and you release your work under the same license. Conlangery's website was created by Bianca Richards. Our theme music is by Null Device and transcriptions of our episodes have been provided by Sarah Doparella. Casado. <laughs>